morning. Uh, my name is Liza Dumbler, and I am a community group leader here at Hope, and I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's Exodus 33:18 through 34:9. Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And he said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy." But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him, he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood, there with, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stick-necked pe people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Good job, Liza. Uh, welcome, good morning. Uh, my name is Gordon Fleming, I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you could join us. Let me pray, and then we're going to consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, we've sang songs about your glory um, and our lack thereof, um, how we constantly forget your promises, we constantly run to um, less wild lovers to counterfeit gods, um, whereas you tell us, as we heard in the call to worship, to come to you in our weariness and our heaviness, and that you will give us rest. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that instead of exhausting ourselves trying to find life in things that will never deliver, that we would slow down and have the courage to go to you and ask for the very thing that you offer. Father, thank you for this morning, a time to come together and worship you, and a time to come and to celebrate the mothers that you've given us. Father, this is a day of celebration, and I know that in a lot of ways it's a day of mourning. Um, it's a reminder of having people that we love um, at times pulled from our lives and feeling the void of that relationship. And so, Father, wherever we are this morning, whether it's 
celebrating laughter or joy, or if it's just a deep sadness, Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are. Um, Father, I pray that your gospel would be on full display this morning, and that you would change our hearts and our minds, Lord, for your glory that we're going to hear about, and how your glory is for our good. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we're continuing our sermon series on the life of Moses. It's been largely, it's been 100% in the book of Exodus so far. This is actually our last week in Exodus. We're going to pick back up next week and finish it off in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And if you were here last week or you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that the book has taken quite a turn. Uh, In the first 31 chapters of Exodus, the word sin is mentioned just 10 times. But in chapters 32 and 34, sin is mentioned 11 times. And so Israel's sin is on full display in these two chapters. And we see this no more clearly than in the passage that we looked at last week, the passage on the golden calf. So Moses is at Mount Sinai meeting with God, and he's gone for a long time. He's gone for 40 days, and God's people start to panic. They start to wonder, has he died? Is he not coming back? Has he left us? They've lost their leader But more importantly, they've lost their connection to the Lord. And so they want to worship, and they decide to take matters into their own hands. And in doing so, they make this golden calf and break a handful of the Ten Commandments in the process. And we're going to see that a tension was created last week largely, and it'll continue through the rest of the book. And the tension is this. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? And this is a tension that still remains today, and still in a a large part in our minds and our hearts can be unresolved at times, because Israel is clearly sinful. And if we're honest and introspective enough, we will know that we are clearly sinful. And so how can they and how can we actually have a relationship with God? Because listen to these two verses from Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Evil may not dwell with you. You hate all evildoers. And we see this dynamic in place in chapters 32 and 33 of Exodus on the heels of this golden calf. Okay, And so this is kind of the progression that takes place. So first God says to Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to completely destroy them and start over with you. And so Moses prays, he intercedes, and God relents. And so then God says to him, fine, go to Canaan. I'll send you an angel before you to send you into the land of milk and honey, but make no mistake, when I show up and when I come back, I'm going to visit their sin upon them. I will blot them out of my book. And then chapter 33 opens in this way. And the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the ites. (laughs) Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so Moses, hearing this, replies to God in a pretty amazing way. He says this, if you don't go with us, we will not go. We will stay right here in the desert. And think about what the inevitable result would be for Israel if they were to do that. Death. God tells, Moses tells God, we would rather die than go without you. And so then God says to Moses, all right, Moses, I will go with you, singular, but I will not go with you, plural. I will not go with y'all. I will go with you. 
I will be with you, Moses, but not them. I will send you my presence. And so Moses goes back. He doubles down. He says to God, you have said that we're your people. You've said that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're going to take the promises that were made to them, and you're going to extend them to us, and you're going to make out of us for yourself a great nation. And how will we be a great nation if you are not with us? He says, it is your presence that makes us great, or the word that he actually uses there is distinct. And then God replies in verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And in this statement, God stays in the singular. He tells Moses, I will do this because you, singular, have found favor in my sight. I know you, singular, by name. Now, I want to note a couple of things here. First, the Hebrew word for presence is the literal word face. Moses is asking God to turn his face toward them, which in doing so will give them the presence of the Lord, which makes sense if you think about it. Because is there anything worse than trying to have a conversation with someone while they're sitting on their phone? Oftentimes, Kelly's family will get together, which we'll do tonight, as a matter of fact. And while we're together, there's this sort of rule that we're to put our phones away, not put them in our pockets, not put them in a purse or whatever, but to go put them in a basket in the other room. And we do that so that we don't have anything pulling our faces away from each other, so that we can be fully present with each other. The other thing I want to touch on briefly is the fact that it appears that Moses is changing God's mind, right? God says, I'm going to destroy these stiff-necked people, and Moses intercedes, and God relents. But what we need to understand is that God is setting up a dynamic that won't be realized until hundreds of years later, and the dynamic is this that God is sovereign, and he's in control of all things, and his plans always come to pass, but they come to pass through a mediator. Again, remember, God said, I will go with y'all, plural, because of you, singular. This is setting the stage for a greater mediator of God's people, which we will later note how this is how God's face can turn towards a sinful people. This is how a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. And then finally, I want us to think about the statement that Moses made to God saying, if you don't go with us, we would rather die. Again, God said, I'm going to send you to this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to give you military success. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you all the benefits of having a relationship with me, but you won't have me. And Moses says, no, he won't have it. He says, we would rather die. Now, I want us to pay close attention to this because it reveals a couple of important realities. And the first is this. You can have all the material prosperity in the world, but still not have God. And this is very important for us to remember because we are an affluent culture. We, by and large, are an incredibly prosperous city, and many of us here are the beneficiaries of that. Nice cars, bank accounts, nice clothes, good friends, memberships, houses. You know, the very zip code that our church is in is, is the wealthiest zip code in the city. But that doesn't mean that 28211 or you necessarily have a relationship with God. Because just because you're blessed in certain ways, it doesn't mean that you have a better relationship with God than those who are not as blessed. And the opposite is true. 
The zip code right next to ours is 28205, the poorest zip code in the city. Does that mean that no one in that zip code knows God? Not at all. And what that means for you personally, that if your life is hard, if your world is falling apart, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that God has removed his presence from you. Yes, of course, there are natural consequences to our sin. We have seen over and over again in Exodus that the inevitable consequence of living our lives against God-created order is death and decay. The Nile will turn to blood. But just because you are going through something terrible, it doesn't mean that God is absent. I know for a fact, and many of you know, that it is in your times of suffering that God is most present to your broken heart. As King David told us in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Again, I've seen this personally to be true, and I know that many of you have as well. But it leads us to a question, and it's one that I've thought about all week. Would you be content with the gifts of God without having the presence of God? And the reason I've thought about this all week is because I don't know exactly how I would answer I mean, I know what I would say, but do I mean it? Do I want money more than God? Do I want stuff more than God? Do I want a life of ease more than God? Or do I just want Him? Is He enough? Pastor and author Mike McKinley asks these haunting questions. It's worth asking ourselves if heaven gave me everything, the job, the girl or guy, the car, the health, the wealth, but Jesus, Jesus wasn't there, would I be content there? Or if heaven gave me nothing except Jesus, would I be satisfied? Deep down, I think I often answer yes and no. That's because I love other things too much, and I love the Lord Jesus far, far too little. That paragraph cut me to my core. And the reason why is because I know that the inclination of my heart is often away from God and toward other things. How about you? How would you answer that question? Is God enough for you? Is Jesus enough? With all the stuff we have, if you lost it all and you still had God, would that be enough for you? Well, here's our problem. The answer for most of us, if we are really honest, would be no. And the reason that we would answer in that way is because we really don't know God. In a real sense, the God that we know is of our own creation. And so we need to look deeply at who He is. And we need to pay attention about who He is. And when we look at Him and truly look at Him, we're going to see this morning that yes, He is enough. And so I want us to consider three things this morning, and this is the outline in your bulletin. First, our desire for God's glory. Second, the heart uh, of God's glory. And then third, the manifestation of of God's glory. So let's look first at our desire for God's glory. So in verse 17, as I mentioned, God has told Moses that he will do what he has promised. And then our passage begins this morning with Moses asking God to please show me your glory, which seems to be a really abrupt change of subject. And it seems to be a really weird request. And the reason that it's so strange is because it really seems that Moses has already seen God's glory, right? The burning bush, the glory of God in a burning bush, the pillars of smoke and fire which represent his glory, the, the cloud of his glory descending on Mount Sinai. Moses has seen plenty of God's glory, maybe more than anyone on the face of the earth at this time. 
But he asks for more. God has told Moses, I know you. I know everything about you. I know your name. I know your face. I even know your past, no matter how checkered it might be. And you have had and you have favor with me. And then Moses tells God in chapter 3, verse 12, Now, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you. Again, he says, show me your ways so that I might know you. That word ways can be translated as a mode of action or a course of life. Moses is essentially saying to God, all right, you know me and you clearly know me well. And now I want to know you. I want to know what drives you. I want to know what makes you tick. This is why he's asking, and this is what he's asking when he asks God to show him his glory. So I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this book before. It's a small book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And this is something he says about this. He says, when we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is, what he is like, his distinctive resplendence, what makes God, God. Moses is asking God, I want to know who you are. He says, I want to know what you are like. I want to know your heart. And if I can, he says, then nothing else matters. Now, here's what's important to note. Again, Moses said, I don't want the riches and the comfort. We don't want that. We want you instead. And he can say this because at one point in his life, he had incredible riches and comfort. Don't forget that Moses lived the first 40 years of his life in Egypt as the son of an Egyptian princess. He had gold and riches. He had the finest food and clothes. He had the greatest chariots in the world. He had unlimited resources. So he was fully educated on what he was turning down in order to get the presence of God because he knew that all those riches and all that stuff never fully satisfy. When Moses is talking about glory, and really the Old Testament word for glory, it's talking about substance, worth, and matter. And Moses knew that compared to knowing him, those things ultimately don't matter. They aren't real substance. They will never fulfill. And don't we really know this? Don't we know this to be true? Because you can have a robust bank account but there's always more money to be had. You can always have a better marriage or more obedient kids. You personally can always be more consistent, more dependable, or more generous. And so just like Israel, we have these things and we make idols and we think if we can get them, then we would be happy. But here's the problem. Our idols keep jumping off the altar. They're elusive and they don't appease the feeling that we have inside all of us that there is more available but we just can't find it in the things of this world. And not only do these idols not ultimately satisfy us, but they enslave us as well. I've got a friend who's an amazing athlete, and he's very good at his craft. And at one point, he was the best in our state at it. He was at the top. He got the accolades and the awards. And after he got the very thing that he thought he wanted most, he became enslaved to it. 
He told me one time, what if I can never achieve this again? What if the people that tell me that I'm so good see me experience failure? What if I'm not as good as people think? What if I can't maintain this level of success? And he developed so much anxiety around the success that he achieved. A sport he loved became something he could hardly even play anymore. And haven't you seen that on some level to be true in your own life? You finally get the thing that you thought was going to make you happy, but it doesn't. And so maybe you double down, or maybe you turn your affection to some, something else, but the same thing happens. And we do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, which is insanity, by the way. But at the end of the day, we have a longing and an ache for something that will never be met in the things of this world. Moses knew that to be true. Innately, we know that to be true. As C.S. Lewis so famously wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So we've got these desires, and they drive us. And so what do we do with them? How do we quench the thirst of our desires? And the answer is this, is that we need to pray like Moses. We need to go to God and say, God, Lord, please show me your glory. Please show me who you are. Show me your ways, because we're going to see that it's in God's glory that we find the weight, the substance, and the matter that we all desire. It's in the glory of God that shows us that we truly matter. And in comparison to it, we can know that nothing else really does. So I joke about gentle and lowly. There's a reason that I mention it in almost every sermon for two years. There's a reason I, on accident, ordered 400 copies of the book so I could give them away. Um, but the book really changed my life in a way that few other books have. I learned about God. I learned about myself, his heart for me, my wife and kids, and for you in a new way. And I'm so grateful that God led Dane Ortland to write that book. As he begins his chapter on this passage, this is how he opens it. He wrote, Who is God? If we could pick only one passage from the Old Testament to answer that question, it would be hard to improve upon Exodus 34. And God really used that chapter to open my eyes to see Him, to see God in a way that I never had before. And here's what I mean. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God, Please show me your glory. And Dane really points out his response, and his response blew me away because God said to him this. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. My goodness, not my greatness. Do you get that? Because if you really think about it, that is a category buster. Think about this. Back in 2020, ESPN released a 10-part series called The Last Dance, which followed the 1997 Chicago Bulls and what would be Michael Jordan's last season with them. And one of the big takeaways from the series is what made Jordan to be arguably the greatest NBA player of all time. And for those of you that watched it, what was it that made Jordan so glorious? Was it his humility? Was it his kindness? Was it his lovingness? Was it his gentleness? Not at all. It was his drivenness. It was his tenacity. It was his killer instinct. And on some level, wouldn't you expect God to lead in the same way? Wouldn't you expect God to say that he is a God of greatness, that he would lead with that, how he created the world, his power and his might, his strength and his grandeur? But he says goodness, 
And then he goes on to speak about how he will show mercy to whoever he wills. He tells Moses that he will place him in the cleft of the rock and that his glory will pass him by. And then the Lord does pass by and defines his glory in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, as a matter of his mercy and his grace. And so I want us to read this really slowly together, and I want us to pay attention to what God said, starting in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Michael Card, in his book, Inexpressible, gave his take on the scene where he wrote, Moses has asked to see God's glory. The Lord has responded by revealing the true nature of that glory. Compassion, mercy, truth, kindness, hesed. That word hesed is God's loving kindness. The New Testament translation is grace. Which Card goes on to describe as when the person whom you have no right to expect anything from gives you everything. And so Moses sees the glory of God, the goodness of God, and what happens. Well, let's read verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You know, if God described his glory, as something like his strength, his holy wrath, his vengeance, or some other attribute of his greatness, I'm not sure that it would have led Moses to worship. Fear, maybe. Insignificance, probably. But in seeing God's goodness, his overwhelming goodness, Moses' natural response was to worship. And ours will be, too. You know, the problem and and why we are so quick to settle for things that this world offers, things that we think will help us to live our best lives now, is because we don't really know this about God. We don't know that He's a God of compassion, mercy, and grace, even against our own sin. Notice what he said toward the end of verse 7 when he said, "...who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Now, naturally, when we, we read that, we don't like it. But let me ask you this. Do you want a God who you can walk all over and completely take advantage of? Or do you want a God who brings truth and justice to falsehood and injustice? Do you, want a, do you want a God who will right, make right, all the ways that you've been wronged? Because sure, you may not want that visiting iniquity statement to be about you, but don't you want it to be true about the hurt that you have experienced? Don't you want a God who has your back? And don't miss the order of what's being said there. Let's hear how Ortland unpacks verse 7. He says this, But notice what God says. His covenant love flows down to a thousand generations, but he visits generational sins to the third or fourth generation. Do you see the difference? Yes, our sins will be passed down to our children and grandchildren, but God's goodness will be passed down in a way that inexorably swallows up all our sins. 
His mercies travel down a thousand generations, far eclipsing the third or fourth generation. As I began this morning, I mentioned that there's a tension in place in Exodus that we still see today. That how can a holy God dwell amongst a sinful people? God forgives sin, yes, but God also punishes sin. In a sense, we can't live with God and we can't live without God. But here's what we need to realize. We have a real advantage to even Moses because we know where the grace of God and the truth of God comes together. The even greater mediator that Moses pointed to, Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God's grace and his glory. Let's read together John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We are told in our passage that Moses could not look at the face of God because if he did, it would kill him. All he could do was essentially encounter the words of God and get a peek at his back. But now the word has become flesh and he has made his dwelling among us. Here is God's presence in the person of Jesus Christ dwelling amongst God's people. And John said in verse 14 that we have seen his glory. Though Moses could not, John looked into the face of God in the compassionate, merciful, gracious face of Jesus and has seen his glory. It is in the face of Jesus Christ that we can see the glory of God and live. So how can we see him? How do we do it? Boots on the ground. How do we make it happen? How can we see the glory of God that, like Moses, will lead us to worship him over and above all things? Well, we see it when we look and we understand what was Jesus' glory. What was his glory? Well, he tells us himself in John 13. He said this, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There's a lot of glory talk there. And what is he talking about? Well, we need to realize that the he that he's talking about there, that John's talking about, who had just gone out, was Judas Iscariot. And Jesus is talking about his glory in regard to what is going to happen next. He is talking about his death on a Roman cross. It is the cross. The cross is his glory. It's the glory of Jesus, and it tells us that God can forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But at the same time, it shows us that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. Forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth meet in Jesus. When he died, your guilt was punished so that you can be forgiven. Your judgment was taken so that you can receive his mercy. The truth of your sin was recognized and accounted for so that you can know the joy and the peace and the life of God's grace. And it was on the cross that God turned his face away from his sinless son so that we can know that God will never turn his face from us, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter how dire it is, 
or no matter the terrible things that you have done. He sees you. He knows you. And because of his son and through his son, you can have his favor. Like Moses, we can say that we can't live without God. We can say that we would rather die than be without his presence. And through Christ, that is something that we never have to say. That is never a reality that we have to experience. God told Moses, if I go with my people, I might destroy them. But now God has destroyed his people in the person of Jesus Christ, his only son, so there is no penalty to be paid. We can live with God. We can dwell with God in confidence now. And we can enter into his promised land and the full glory of his presence. We cannot live with God. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of his son, we will never have to. He loves you that much. He came for you. He redeemed you through his cross, through his glory. Now that is a God that is truly worthy of our praise. Let me pray for us. Father, we sing here from time to time that your glory is beautiful. And it is, but it's also terrible because your glory is your death. And it was necessary to redeem us as your people so that a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. And so, Father, I pray that we would pray like Moses, that you would please show us your glory in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would dwell with us now as your people. In your name I pray.